Welcome to The Whole Truth, where two wholesalers help financial professionals build great practices and thrive in a rapidly changing industry. We'll bring you the stories and voices from those on the front lines of this change, and we'll have some fun along the way. This is more than a podcast. We're building a community of financial professionals who are growing, forward-thinking, and want to get better. Thanks for listening and contributing to the discussion. The views expressed herein are those of the participants and not those of Touchstone Investments. And welcome, everybody, to The Whole Truth from the Bay Area, California. I am Steve Side. Still with a strong I am. I love it. And from Atlanta, Georgia, I am Kurt Dupuy. So welcome to The Whole Truth, everybody. We have uh, a twofer today, two great guests. We kick things off with our colleague, John O'Neill, which is one of our most tenured and successful colleagues. John's going to talk about business planning, specifically getting out of the trap of ineffective annual planning. He has a great planning method he's developed over the years, and it should be very helpful to most of you. Then for the second interview, we have Dax Stadjuar on for his second appearance. You guys loved him the first time around. Just to remind for those who don't know, Dax is a partner at an organization called The Network, which encompasses a large group of financial professionals in the LPL ecosystem. He's involved with practice management. He's been spending a lot of time talking to his folks about effectively working remotely. Even though things are normalizing now, we know remote working is going to remain to different degrees. A few episodes ago, we had Jason Zawalik on to give his ideas around remote working. Dax will provide us with a very robust part two of this discussion. And a quick reminder, if you're listening to this on your PC or your spouse's PC or your kid's iPad, make sure to subscribe on whatever podcasting platform you listen to us. And as always, reach out to us at thewholetruth at touchstonefunds.com if you have any questions, comments, or criticisms. Now let's kick things off with our interview with John O'Neill. We're very pleased to welcome our colleague and friend, Johnny O, welcome. Thank you guys for having me. Pleasure to be here finally. I, you know, I, I kept waiting and waiting for my invitation and it, it never really came. So I just came to you guys. <laughs> you have an open invitation, John. Uh, you are, uh, John, are you, the, are you the most senior wholesaler in our organization? Is it you? Well, length of service at the company as a wholesaler, yes. Nugent's been here longer as an employee, but not longer as a wholesaler. Jeff Bryant came in right after me. So he is the, he is the, he's the OG. I'm the OG, man. It's me. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> you know, what's interesting about the way that you approach the job, John, which I always, I just really admire, you know, there's a lot of wholesalers that really grip the stick really tight. You know, they, they live and die by every year and every sale. And what I admire about you is you seem to always enjoy it. That's why you have longevity in the business is you found a way to be successful and also balanced. Let me ask you this. It, that's how you appear. Is that how it really is? I'd say so. Um, to me, if if you're not having fun wholesaling, you're doing something wrong because, uh, yeah, you know, I mean, let's face it. We have goals we have to hit and we're accountable for and all that, but we can do that and also have a good time, you know, and, uh, yeah, you know, end of the day, I mean, that's what advisors want too. Absolutely. We were just talking before we started recording actually about, about fishing. And I mean, the fact that we can even entertain the idea of fishing with financial professionals that, you know, and some, that sometimes also become friends and buddies. It's, it's a pretty, pretty nice gig if, if we're honest about it. It is. I think, I think my son thinks all I do is, is take people out to, to lunch and, and go fishing and shooting. Yeah. You have a particular way of approaching business planning that we wanted to talk about. I think it's something like 77%. It's a very high number of financial professionals don't even write an annual business plan. And it wouldn't shock you sort of the the divide, but those that are million dollar producers and up tend to have a plan. Those that are on the lower end of the revenue scale do not have a plan. So let's just emphasize business planning is important, but you've got a really unique take on this and don't really like the annual plan. What What's the story there? No, I, <laughs> I think the story there started with the fact that I know myself and I know that I'm a procrastinator. <laughs> so if I make myself an annual business plan, I'm going to say it's only January. 
I got all year to hit that goal. You know, why, why, why rush now? <laughs> so, um, read, I read a book several years ago that, uh, put the idea into my head of making a quarterly business plan. And luckily for my purposes, it was a very short book, you know, with, with really wide margins, you know, and, uh, so I was able to read it. And, um, but the idea was to to make a quarterly business plan as opposed to an annual plan. Think quarterly as opposed to thinking annually. Uh, one, for the reason that I just gave, that an annual plan kind of can easily set you up to fail. Um, there's just too much time in the year. Uh, there's too much time to procrastinate. And the next thing you know, it's, it's all of a sudden September. <laughs> Kids are going back to school and you're... You're like, oh my gosh, I'm not even halfway to my goal, but I'm more than halfway through the year. Uh, what am I going to do? So if you take your annual goal, break it up into quarters, to me, it just makes a lot more sense. And I'm, I'm able to hold myself much more accountable to that. And then, uh, you know, just, just go have some fun with it, you know? I've heard you talk about a trap. Is it is it that, you know, you have the full year, so it's easy to both kick it off to the future and never think about it. And then it's also easy towards the end to say, ah, I'm close to the end of the year. So it's like, is that the trap you describe where it's never really the right time to take the action? Yeah, there's there's a couple traps with it, I'd say. that That's certainly one of them. That's the biggest one. Um, the other trap too is just, why, why put all that time into an annual plan only to have something like, I don't know, COVID <laughs> happen in, <laughs> in March and completely blow that plan out of the water and then you've got to completely make a new plan, you know? So uh, in other words, things change in our business incredibly fast. So to me, it just doesn't even make sense to make an annual plan. You've got to have a quarterly plan. Yeah. And, and we see it all the time with financial professionals who do it once a year and don't even look at it again. So we right. definitely are in agreement. Annual is not right. So what actually is the right frequency? Have you tried different frequencies and what makes sense to you? Now, once I read that book, which was called Periodization, um, uh, I jumped on that concept of the quarterly plan, uh, and I've I've stuck with it ever since. And I'll, I'll read that book about once a year. Can you actually um, send that to me? Like, can we can we trade that back every six months because I <laughs> sure. look for it on Amazon and it's like three thousand dollars because apparently <laughs> is that right? Print a lot of them. So can we can we have a book sharing club? We can do that. I might I might even have a couple extra copies around. I'll take a look. Oh, Lou, but look at uh, nice guy. But yeah, um, my favorite part of it is think about what you do at the end of the year. What do you do? What do you do at the end of the year? It's the end of the year. It's the holidays take a vacation, take some time off, relax. What I do now is at the end of every quarter, I take a nice long weekend, take a four day weekend, think about my successes from the previous quarter, make my plan. Actually, I kind of already have my plan made for the next quarter by then, but I just put the final touches on it and I get ready to put it into action. But I take that long weekend, take that four day weekend and just kind of relax, check out. I might tie that in with a week vacation if the timing's right, you know, um, but uh, got to have your time off to, to refresh, you know. This is what I'm talking about with him, Kurt. This is that's OG stuff. He's just <laughs> slipping in there, right? He's got the yeah. four day at the end of the quarter. He's this is uh, he's the least stressed out wholesaler. I know. I love it. I'm taking notes, John. I just want you to know that. Do you think this is an approach that financial professionals should take as well? I do. Yeah. You know, we've we've spent so much time at Touchstone. Uh, on the practice management side of things, uh, helping advisors uh, segment their business, things like that. That uh, you know, the most the most successful advisors I see, they they have their business segmented. Um, they know who their A and B clients are, and they have typically a quarterly call rotation set up, or call a quarterly touch. You know, if you walk through an office, you can. You can tell who the advisors are that are being controlled by their business versus the advisors who are in control of their business. You know, the advisors who are in control, uh, they have a plan. They've built out their their practice so they know who their A's and A and B clients are, and they know when they're going to touch those clients, and that allows them time to prospect and not feel like they're constantly behind the eight ball trying to play catch up. Yeah. So when you talk about quarterly planning, is it the type of thing where 
you're starting a brand new plan, like a full process? Are you editing the the original plan? Like how do you approach each quarter? Is it brand new or or edit? Uh, yes. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> a little bit of both. Um, here's a good example. We're, we're, we're closing on our fourth acquisition in the 10 years that I've been at Touchstone. And so that gives us a different, a different activity set for that quarter once, once that gets finished. And so it just seems like there's always something different to do uh, quarter by quarter. Yeah. And what goes into your plan? Like, how do you structure it? There's things we have to do that don't generate business, right? It's just, it's just a, part of, it's a part of life. It's a part of what we do. So we have to separate those things out that do generate us business. And those critical objectives, I call them. Um, and we have to make sure we're spending time doing those critical objectives or we're not going to hit our goal. It's easy to sit down and do an expense report, do my activity report, uh, do my quarterly compliance things and feel like I worked really hard today. But into a thing <laughs> that's going to impact my else. Yeah. You, you know what I mean, right? So You didn't take anybody fishing. <laughs> Didn't take anybody fishing, didn't, didn't see an advisor for lunch, didn't, didn't bust an advisor's chops for anything, you know? <laughs> so, um, yeah, you've got you to have those, those critical objectives built into the plan and make sure that um, you're spending time on those. And then I think part of that, too, is, you know, for, for me, I've got, I've got uh, a lot of kids, as, as you know, and... Uh, Everything's about my kids right now. So kind of, I think if you make that emotional connection to your critical objectives, like what matters to me is making money for my kids so I can put them through school, saving for college, club sports, you know, clothes, all the, all the things that they need, you know, and that's what keeps me going and focused on my critical objectives every quarter. So keep in mind those critical objectives, What, but also recognize that those aren't going to change it a lot, but the tactics maybe for accomplishing those might, which is why you kind of get the quarterly reset. I think there's a lot of re- really good um, kind of synergies of thought with, with what we do and what financial professionals do for this. Thinking about the next three months seems a lot less daunting than thinking about the next 12 months because there's timidity, right? Wait, what if we what if we establish this marketing plan and it goes nowhere for 12 whole months? Right. Um, so there's some freedom in that. Yeah, I, I would add one thing because I do a lot of uh, team coaching. Um, I love the idea of quarterly planning. And if you can add an element of accountability within your plan, even better. Hmm. So, you know, for, for the teams that I'm working with, it's recurring meetings and, and me coming in and saying, hey, you said you're going to do this. So whether you work with an outside partner or whether you have someone on the team that does it, just bringing some accountability to that process, I think will really enhance it. And also a reward because a thing I, I use is like, look, if we get through this quarter, we hit those objectives. You know, I, yes. I tell clients all the time, exactly. what's, what's your flavor? <laughs> you know, what, yeah. what kind of bottle can I bring to, to our next meetup? And that way, if, if you have a, I mean, if you're having a great, great quarter, you know, like I had a great quarter this year, you know, so that was going to be normally just a four day weekend at home, but it was such a good quarter that my wife and I decided to go to Delray Beach. Nice. So um, there's a legendary story about you um, just starting in the company. You come in, you don't really know those people, and you decide to, what is it, stand on a chair and do an Irish toast in front of everybody? So I, I, I wonder if you could tell that story. I was uh, a new wholesaler at, at a new company, and um, it was our first divisional meeting. I'd only been on board a couple of weeks, first time meeting everybody. And uh, I don't know. I just just felt like we gelled. I felt like we clicked, and uh, just a great group of people to, that we were working with. And so that toast I did was where you you stand up on a chair, you hold hold your glass up, and and the I think the toast was uh, may the roof above never fall in, and may the friendships below never fall out. Mm. <laughs> so so yeah, and it's become a staple at sales meetings now. Uh, I always look forward to. To the, the toast that we're going to get. Yeah, I've become required to, uh, to give a toast now at our national sales meetings. So, so do you prep? You have to prep for each one to find a new Irish toast at each one. That's part of the prep. Yeah, and I I think after ten years now, I've kind of exhausted all the uh, 
all the Irish toast that uh, were safe to use at one of our our meetings, and uh, <laughs> I just had to make up some of my own along the way. I used to go to irishtoast.com. Now we're now we're doing Johnny O originals, which I love. Well, well thanks, man. Uh, really appreciate it. We think it's a fantastic topic, business planning. It's something everybody could get better at, even if you're doing it now. Uh, John, we'd love to have you back uh, again in the future. Love to be back. Thanks so much. Thank you guys for having me. I appreciate it. Coming up next is our interview with Dax Staduar. This is The Whole Truth. Stick with us. So we are thrilled to have our good friend Dax Staduar back. Dax, thanks so much for coming back. Second time. We appreciate it. No, this pleasure is mine. Thank you so very much. I appreciate it. If you haven't listened to the episode that Dax did before with us, go back and listen. It was fantastic. We got really good feedback on that episode. But great to have you back on. We want to get a catch up on what's going on with the network. We'll refresh everybody on that. Um, you know, we want to get to know you a little bit better right up front. Last time you had mentioned you were in the Army for what was it, better part of 10 years? Uh, just over eight years in the Army. Yes. Yep. So yep. tell us about that. Um, you know, I was an Army officer, uh, which some people, uh, they don't. They don't know the difference between being enlisted and an officer. The one of the differences is you have to have a college degree to be an officer, and across any of the any of the military service, uh, Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines. The um, so uh, my grandfather, both my grandfathers were in the military, Air Force and Army. Uh, my my dad went through the Air Force Academy. My uncle was in the uh, Air Force. I mean, everybody's been in the military at, at all generational levels. So. Uh, it's something I wanted to do. So I went to college. I uh, got commissioned as an Army officer in the infantry. Um, I had an incredible time. Uh, I couldn't believe I got paid. I didn't get paid well, but I couldn't believe I got paid uh, to do it. Uh, and I was—I I had some incredible leaders. Uh, I think ultimately, I always tell people we're products of maybe five people in our lifetime. It could be your dojo if you're in karate. It could be your parents. It could be a coach. It could be uh, your religion. Um, and, and I, I always tell people, um, you know, the army definitely was one of those It has influenced me the rest of my life. And I had an incredible time. I actually met my wife in the army oh, over nice. in South, in South Korea. She was a military no intelligence kidding. officer, wow. yeah, military intelligence officer. So I, I feel bad for my kids being raised by two army officers. <laughs> it's pretty tough in our household. Um, they can't get but, away with anything, man. Like, no, no. It's, and, and daily they hear from me, just be a leader today, be a leader because um, leadership sometimes is in short supply in our world. But I had a great time. It was, um, as an infantry guy, I had some opportunities to, uh, to go to some really cool schools like Ranger School. Oh, uh, wow. I, was in, I was in Korea for three years uh, up on the DMZ. Uh, I got to deploy a rifle company to Kosovo. I uh, just got to lead some incredible soldiers. I had some incredible non-commissioned officers. I never regret anything because you always move forward. But uh, I never regretted anything about the military. It was awesome. Well, and, and I have always found that folks with a military background, they tend to be really good storytellers and they often have a treasure trove <laughs> of really good stories. Is there, is, is, does anything come to mind with, uh, with, a, with a cool story from your time in the military? Well, you guys know what the difference between a fairy tale and a war story is, right? <laughs> no. So a fairy tale, a fairy tale starts once upon a time, and a, and a war story starts. Uh, no blank, there I was. So, um, so, so that's that's. Uh, so I, I, you know, I, I, I will say that um, sometimes your your uh, best experiences in the military are those that are um, very dangerous and almost get you killed. Um, and I, I had a couple times. I was actually I, I volunteered to be a general's aide in Korea for a one-star general uh, for 10 months. And, uh, and we flew around uh, Korea in a helicopter all day long. That's all we did to go visit units. Uh, we had two very, uh, very near misses in helicopters wow. with wow. some mechanical failures, um, which were very close. Uh, twice, uh, one back-to-back, uh, -back, like weekly back-to-back, -back. one on a Friday and another one on the next Wednesday. I could not believe it. I'm like, okay, Lord, what are you telling me here? Yeah. Um, and, uh, and then just, you know, be, being in Kosovo with some great soldiers, um, and there was just a lot of conflict going on at the time uh, back when we were there. But uh, I, I will say, honestly, I've never directly been shot at. I haven't been in war. I'm not going to grant, you know, um, uh, do, do that compared to what our soldiers and airmen and Marines and Navy folks have been through the last uh, two decades. I got out re right before um, the uh, second Gulf War. So believe me, those those guys and gals out there that have been directly shot at and doing some incredible stuff, uh, I would never compare myself to them at all. 
Did you did you let out a high pitched squeal when your helicopter like did you when you were down did <laughs> you have to apologize octave. or were you just or were you just was everyone super tough because you guys are military and you would never show you know that kind of thing. I think for me, because um, we, we were we had a, a hydraulic failure in the helicopter, and um, we were getting ready to land. And of course, you hear the gears and everything in the back make that high pitched squeal. Oh, I didn't have God. to. I didn't have to make that high pitched squeal because all the <laughs> gearing and everything was. Um, but we pulled off a mountain, and we we actually did a run on landing. If you know what a, a, a Huey Cobra or a Huey helicopter is, it's got the skids. And you, when you have a hydraulic failure, you, you can't land normally up and down like you normally do. You have to land like a plane. So you literally do what's called a run on landing because like you're you sliding no in the home. <laughs> yeah, yeah, literally oh you, you my slide. God. So you you're you're coming in and you land a helicopter uh, sliding like a like oh, a plane. And, um, and but we had a very experienced warrant officer. You either have officers or warrant officers as your uh, your pilots, your CPs, commanding pilot. Um, and guy was incredible. Uh, just, he, yeah, he, he did a, uh, some really good work. I knew there'd be something. We could do a podcast on that <laughs> alone, but, uh, but we're here to have you talk about a few different things. So why don't we start, just give an overview of the network again. Uh, you did it last time, do it again. Um, sure. fantastic organization. Every person that I've interacted from the network has just been unbelievable. So you're doing something right over there. Well, and, and you know, off that comment, I think it's uh, every interview, right, is a two-way street. I mean, we love advisors that um, uh, want to be part of the organization, have just a great attitude, love their clients. I mean, it's it's always just make sure you're bringing the right people in. But you know, the network, um, as of today, uh, roughly about 350 advisors. Where you might call us a professional OSJ or enterprise office RIA firm. Uh, majority of our advisors are duly affiliated with LPL. Uh, uh, many of them on LPL's corporate RIA, also about 110 on an RIA firm that we own and manage. Um, ultimately, uh, advisors are attracted to us for several different reasons. One, obviously, the compliance support, the operational support. We have a, now we're up to a 14-person virtual admin team, or what I like to say sometimes employee leasing. So this is where folks out there um, who don't want to have a full-time assistant, or they already do, but that person's a little bit overwhelmed and they and they don't have enough hours to hire another full-time person so they can hire us to do really anything they want uh, us to do, minus on that side, make a trade. But we do have a portfolio consulting team that is now 10 people strong. Uh, we hired wow. eight individuals last year through the pandemic, four for our portfolio consulting team, four for our virtual admin team. And ultimately the folks that are coming there are asking and saying, listen, I need a very dialed in institutional investment process uh, that I want for my clients. Um, I would like you to do all the trading, rebalance, uh, rebalance work, variance-based rebalancing, tax efficiency work, and then lastly, help me with new portfolios, new clients, portfolio. Um, you know, help me go after the the larger clients, the high net worth clients. And when you wrap all those three together, we literally bolt that team onto another advisor. So literally, at the network, you might have a sole proprietor that their administrative staff is a member of the network, and their investment team is a team at the network. Uh, and they literally are able to do everything else themselves, have conversations with clients, write those financial plans. We have technology resources. Uh, and then we also help people acquire businesses uh, through partnerships with firms like Trulytics, uh, LPL Financial, uh, financial um, <clears throat> organizations that can loan money. Uh, we had 15 acquisitions in the network last year. So, wow. gosh, it's just a matter of sitting down with good advisors who are entrepreneurs uh, and knowing that they don't. Uh, want or need to do it all themselves, uh, that they can bolt our teams on to take care of that work for them. Well, and you specifically, based off our previous conversation, talk a lot about practice management, which is true to near and dear to our hearts. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. What have you been doing? Like, what what have you been spending your time on? Like, what what has practice management, I'm using air quotes, meant the last 12 months? Firstly, as a pandemic hit, and there were a lot of unknowns, I will say early on, it was a lot of education around, okay, we have the market dropping. Uh, How do clients react? What should you be doing in a crisis situation? What should you be documenting? You got to be over communicative with your clients. You need to be listening. Uh, And that's what we were talking to our clients about. At the same time, when I say our clients, our advisors, at the same time, Jeremy, my my business partner, I've got two business partners, Christopher Mercado and Jeremy Olin. Uh, Jeremy was doing a Friday uh, call with everybody and just breaking the whole playbook down, saying, hey, listen, remember, here's our process. You know, you, you got to continue to over, uh, you got to continue to analyze your investment holdings. 
uh, what's your de-risk protocol? What's your de-risk protocol at the individual asset class level, as well as at the overall holdings level? And I think we carried that over into probably June 1st. I won't say we were out of the woods, but the market had rebounded a little bit. And we had been pushing so much content and so many calls and helping people through the markets um, that we took a pause. We literally said, I think we've overwhelmed everybody. We've had some incredible guest speakers. We had the CEO of the Institute for Supply Management on. We had Kevin O'Leary from Shark Tank on. We had uh, people who were uh, pandemic and um, uh, doctor specialists, you know, talking about COVID and and, uh, therapies and everything else. I was like, we have overwhelmed everybody. We got to just do a hard stop and let people relax. I mean, we literally let everybody took the, take the summer off and we knew everyone else was slamming stuff at them. And we just said, hey, we gave you enough content. And we were just, the way, what we communicated was, hey, if you, if you need to talk, just call. We'll be here. And we had a lot of one-on-one conversations. And then we picked it back up in October and we started talking about things that were going well. We were talking, of course, about the election. Okay, now that we've been in this six months, and we've all been working out of our basements <laughs> and maybe we haven't shaved and maybe we haven't uh, you know, taken care of ourselves. Um, we're going to have to get back to work, right? Because it's, it's all been fun doing a uh, video call with somebody when you haven't shaved, you got your hoodie on um, <laughs> for a while. Guilty. And, and, ev- Guilty. and everybody's, everybody's cool it because of what's happening on the world. But then it was like, hey, January 1, New Year's resolution, everybody's back to work, whether you're virtual or not. Uh, wear the tie, wear the sport coat. And there were some folks I would call and they said, yeah, I just moved my computer from home to my dining room table or from my office to my dining room table and it hasn't moved in six or seven months. I'm like, holy moly, like no lighting, no camera, nothing. So we focused on equipment um, and we've been focusing with people on, okay, how do you present yourself? And, you know, I've got Zoom fatigue like everybody else. I, um, you know, I redid the lighting in my office and a bunch of other things, but I, I tell people, do you mind if I get off the camera uh, pick up my phone and just my AirPods and go sit in a comfortable chair. That's happened so much, that hasn't it? Like, why, why can't we just use the f- yeah. the phone now? People could schedule Zoom calls for everything, and you don't need to look at each other all day. You could just talk. What do you want to do that you feel comfortable with? Do you want to talk over the phone? Do you want to be on video? And uh, or or do you now want to come back in the office or meet at a coffee shop? And one really fun. Uh, webinar we did is we actually had Joe Navarro, um, Joe Navarro, who's a a former FBI agent and a nonverbal communication specialist. And I asked him to do a call because, you know, nonverbal communication, you hear all the statistics, whatever it's 90, 93% of all communications nonverbal. But I said, you know, Joe, ultimately, I mean, we, we get, uh, we get that, but what if I can only see somebody's face? What if I only have them from the neck up or the waist up? What should I be focusing on? And the cool thing was, is even though 93% of communication is nonverbal, 80% of that nonverbal is all in the face. So that's actually one of the cool things about even Zoom. The tough part about being on a camera is I tell people, would you ever go into a conference room and sit there with a mirror in front of you on yourself (laughs) and then a client over (laughs) off to the side? And that's what sucks about Zoom. And I don't care how cool, how, how well, how humble you are, you're still vain at heart. And you can't not stop focusing on yourself and go, do I look like a moron? Am I looking at Steve? Am I looking at Kurt? What, what am I doing here? Um, so, so that's, I think, been the tough thing is it's hard to get off yourself and focus on your clients on that Zoom call and see that nonverbal communication. So between equipment and attitude and, and now looking at nonverbal communication and looking at somebody in the face over the camera, it's been tough. Uh, and we've just been trying to help people through that whole process. Yeah, you're starting to get into what we're going to dig into you, yeah. uh, which is vir- the, the virtual engagement, because it's an interesting dynamic going on. We see the end, right? At the same point, what is normal is going to change. So what I've seen you and I've seen you know, the network start to do is, is say, okay, we are normally, but let's reflect on what we've done here and how to make it better because a new normal is going to emerge. So what's your sense, Dax, from like talking to your financial professionals, do you get the sense that most people are going to change the way that they work? Um, I believe most people will say that they're, they're going to adopt the hybrid model. I mean, you hear that all over the place, right? If there's one good thing that's come out of this is every advisor should know how to do what we're doing. They should know how to have a camera and lighting and talk to their clients on a screen. Whether they uh, go back to everything they were doing before, 
whether this has just been a, uh, a fad, right? And they go back to meeting everybody in the office. They know how to do it. Um, and, and the kicker with that is, is now there's no excuse. If you totally go back to everything in the office, the kicker is there's no excuse now not to have a family meeting with your clients in the office and the kids across the country. Yeah, good point. There's no excuse not to bring in the CPA or attorney uh, on video conference from their office. Uh, there's no excuse that if there is a, maybe you've always engaged with a wife or you've always engaged with a husband and the other one is disinterested, there potentially is no excuse not to dial that other party in from the house just to say, hey, I'm trying to make this as convenient as possible for you because I want you to be informed and to continue to break down barriers to the family meeting, knowing both spouses, the professional relationships. If, if we do nothing else coming out of this, I think that's the best thing. And I do, I, I do think a lot of people will just go back to working in the, in the office if they can. But some people have also moved out of their community. Yeah. And I mean, I, I know a lot of people have moved out of California. I know a lot of people have moved out of the cities. Uh, so now you're going to have to reach out and engage those clients. So I think a lot of barriers and walls have been broken down uh, to, to communicate effectively or just communicate efficiently and uh, conveniently. So when you look at virtual engagement, there's five things that you think about. And here's the five. Equipment, attitude, awareness, focus points, and reassess. So let's take those one at, at a time. Um, and let's start with equipment. Sure. We were fortunate enough to have a consultant come on a call with me. He had a great story uh, when it comes to equipment. He actually had sold a company and then moved, I think it was to Thailand and started another software company. So he was a, uh, he called himself a digital nomad. And this was like 10 years ago. He was like, there were all these digital nomads that were leaving the US and going to work overseas. And he said, I had this great pad and I started this software company and I'm talking to people back in the US and UK and everywhere else. And I realized that I'm sitting there and my background is a blank wall. And I tell them in, I'm in Thailand and I'm asking them to invest millions of dollars into new software. <laughs> and he goes, it was completely oblivious to me that if I wasn't gonna, if I wasn't closing him, it's probably because like, why are we going to give this guy millions of dollars? He's in Thailand and he's That's living in a That's not suspicious at all. No. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so he, he had, he realized, oh my gosh, I got to build a presence. I, I got to look the, I got to look the part, so to say. So when it comes to equipment. I think it's just a matter of saying, Everything. It's, it's your computer. It's your camera. It's your lighting. It's your background. What do you want to uh, show as your background? Um, do, do you want personal uh, personal effects in your background? I've had a lot of calls with advisors with great family pictures in the background, and it sparks it sparks great conversation. Yeah. Um, and and just having someone tell you how you sound, how you look, how you present yourself, ultimately, you know, could be uh, half the battle. So to say, so good, just good equipment is the most important thing. And then the second thing you get into is attitude. And when I was reading through, you know, what you talk back here, this resonates with me. It's like some days I feel like, man, I'm knocking it out. I'm, I'm not commuting the way that I used to. So I just, I'm hammering out all this stuff. And then other days I feel like I drop my daughter off. I, you know, I do the dishes and it's five o'clock and I'm like, what in the world just happened to today? So how right. do you talk about attitude and the approach to just day to day? Well, um, you, you know, you guys know we're big fans of Colby, uh, which is a assessment that tells you pretty much your core strengths. Uh, and if some of you listening to this podcast have never heard of Colby, it's K-O-L-B-E. Um, but there are many quote-unquote personality tests. This is called a cognitive assessment. So I think sometimes within the network, when we're talking about attitude, um, it, it lends itself to really know yourself and then how you want to problem solve or how what's your environment. And, and for some people, you know, this is a really tough environment to be in. Um, it, 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 it is completely against their grain to operate in this environment. Many of our advisors in the network are what we call initiating quick starts. Um, they speak uh, verbals their best. Uh, engaging personally is what's really important to them. Having really good uh, client interaction is like oxygen. Um, so I think one of the things is when I think of attitude is whether you have to self-motivate or you really have to tell yourself, this isn't a good environment for me and I'm, I'm going to have to figure out whether I just do phone or I'm on the camera 
or I've got to sneak coffee with somebody, or I got to get out of the office. Whatever you got to do, you got to know what's affecting your attitude because you, your clients need you more than ever right now. And whether it be health uh, or your uh, your mental attitude, it's pretty important. I tell you, I've never had fewer weeds in my flower beds because that's one of my things. Walk around. Put, <laughs> Is that what you do? Get on the phone, put in the, the earbuds, make some calls and and just pick weeds. It's it's neurotic, but a small window into my warped world. Uh so awareness is on your list. That's the third thing. Yeah. And, you know, I, I love talking about emotional intelligence, self-awareness, and that kind of bleeds into the Colby stuff. Is that what you're talking about? Is it, is it just being self-aware? I threw that on there as, a, uh, as an idea of also saying aware of your clients uh, mm. and going back to what Joe talked about in the nonverbal communication. You know, it's people, obviously many, many people have been affected by this uh, in this pandemic. And you know, people were fearful about their money. Uh, people were fearful about their health. They were fearful about their um, th- their children, their their parents, uh, what they could and couldn't do. Um, you know, just heck, we had an election as well. So I think that the nonverbal aspect. Uh, I've been worried about if people have been. Uh, I hate to say self medicating throughout this whole process. And uh, and maybe you're not, but what if your clients are? And can you see that? And then of course. How far do we go as advisors? But my gosh, many of us, we are the first call for people. And if we can identify those and, and feel comfortable enough to go far enough to say, hey, listen, you need to take care of yourself. Uh, if you're watching people over the camera add pounds or the, the, the you know, the beneath the eyes, you know, the, the bloodshot, whatever it is, I think it, once again, it goes back to just being aware of what your clients are going through and be able to read it, whether they're saying it or not. If you look at sales for uh, alcoholic beverages like beer, wine, they're doing really well Ooh, in this pandemic. Yeah. They really are. Uh, okay, next one on the list we're plowing right through is focus points. Um, you know, I'm I'm very much a proponent of a focus strategy with anything. I honestly don't know how you have strategy without some kind of focus. But yeah. talk to talk to me about that. Why is that on your list as being one of the important things? So what I, the reason I put that on there was because I, in this environment, uh, if you're doing a Zoom or go to meeting call, uh, I think a lot of the feedback that were coming back from folks was I, I can go about 15 minutes and then it, we're just not talking about anything because we know why TED Talks are still popular, right? I mean, it's a short amount of stuff and, and it gets it across and it, it's why sitcoms. I mean, we know all this, why stuff is getting shorter and shorter. So I started talking about to advisors and saying, listen, if you're talking about a complex product or a complex financial plan or anything complex, maybe you need to schedule three calls that are all 15 minutes because you're not going to be able to get through three points. You're going to have to hit one point, agree on it and say, OK, our action items now move to step two and then set that up for a couple of days later or next Monday or whatever. So that's why I put that in my my graphic of saying if, if if we do nothing else now i'm not saying i'm not going to say don't have the call and talk about the weather and the kids and who's gone back to school and who hasn't but if if the client if you're doing business for the client um in my opinion with uh this virtual environment you may need to take that 15 minutes and only cover one thing rather than covering three or four things i don't know anybody who possibly can hold a two-hour meeting maybe like they used to uh, after 15 minutes, I think people are zoned out. I'm sure there's a leadership principle in there and, and, and psychologists probably back it up. Two, two hour meetings are just brutal. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you talk, so, so your last point, and I, I, I really am curious where this goes, reassess. And you strike me as a person who's always trying to kind of sharpen the sword, get better. And it seems like you, you do that constantly, reassess. It's like, you know, you do yeah. something, analyze it, reassess, then repeat. But what's, what's the message there, though, for financial professionals, it's specifically as this kind of we, we approach this hybrid way of doing business? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, and, and kind of whole reassess and even remove. And we can get that as well. Companies go through these Six Sigma lean engagements. You know, what are we doing? Some people will say, hey, I want to do this, this, this. And I go, great. Um, Why don't we start with all the things you are doing that you shouldn't be doing anymore or no one cares about anymore? And they go, wow, okay. And I ask them hard questions like, hey, how many times do you prepare certain reports you don't even use anymore for your clients or your clients don't even take them or care about them? How long did that take you? Because if you're going to add a bunch of new stuff, you better get rid of a lot of stuff. 
If you're going to add four hours worth of work, you better find four hours of work you work you, that isn't productive anymore. So I think the reassessment is a constant thing. And even in this environment, it could be the reassessment of which clients is this good for, uh, the virtual uh, meetings, or even you. If, I mean, if you've been struggling through this and you're not passionate about it, um, what is the medium that you are comfortable with, uh, with your clients? And be honest with them and say, hey, I'd much rather do phone appointments. You know, so I think reassessment's just always crucial. What's working, what's not working, uh, keep the good, shelve the bad. Yeah. So this is a nice little framework of takeaways to go through with your team, equipment, attitude, awareness, focus points, and reassess. So Dax, as you think about, and you sort of reflect on this past year, talk about the things you saw your financial professionals struggle with the most. What were those things? And then the ones that like really thrived and succeeded, why did they, what was it about them that, that like allowed them to succeed. So give us kind of both sides of that. Sure. Yeah. And I may even split up into three because I've really seen three types of advisors. I have seen um, those that were very successful through the pandemic um, and grew extensively and added a lot of relationships and solidified a lot of relationships. And the one thing that made them different was I I think they were prepared for this. Uh, They had no idea a pandemic was coming. Uh, but they had built a firm where they were the CEO and they had staff, they had support. And when uh, the pandemic hit, they literally, all they had to do was pick up the phone and talk to their clients yeah, and be responsive. Uh, they had built a model where they literally were free enough to just pick up the phone, call their clients, check on people and be present. There were also a group of clients uh, or advisors that um, weren't at that level their, their returns for the year were market-based returns, so their growth rate was the market. They added some clients, they lost some clients. They struggled with doing everything themselves and trying to help their clients through a crisis. And maybe I mentioned it earlier, it's very tough to um, ha- manage a crisis and be in a crisis yourself at the same time. It's very difficult. And, and, and I'll, I'll give you an example. If a client comes to you and they're having a divorce, well, you're not having a divorce, so you can be present for them. And then another client comes to you and they've got a sick child and you don't have a sick child and you're not freaking out, so you're present for them. Well, when everybody's in a crisis mode and you're dealing with it as well, in your household, it's very tough to be able to lead. I mean, you're, you're just swimming with the masses. There's nothing you can do to save other people. So that was difficult for that group of advisors. Uh, many of them rose above it. Uh, many of them realized they needed to transition their business in the middle of it and hire other people and hire other resources. And then unfortunately, there were probably about 10% of folks out there that were dealing with a very personal crisis themselves, whether it be COVID or a very sick parent or a sick spouse, and they and they were literally taken out of commission. And the, pro, and the unfortunate thing about that is when their clients needed the most, uh, they weren't there. And the, and the perception then was, if you're not there for me now, uh, I'm going to have to find somebody who's there for me. And and money was in motion. Um, and that was very difficult to watch that uh, for some of those folks and even reach out to them and say, hey, how can we help? Can we trade your accounts? Can we do this? Can our, our virtual admin? But unfortunately, when you're in a very emotional or stressful point, it's, it is almost impossible to make sound decisions. Absolutely. It's, I think this, it's really good framework really and really beneficial, I think, to everyone in the audience, everyone in the community to, to listen to, you know, a guy that's running a shop like yours, just, just to sort of put some human elements to it, that, that everyone was dealing with this, some were successful, some weren't, but at the core, a really good framework to move forward into this, you know, kind of post-pandemic hybrid world we're living in. So we want to kind of transition to a semi-lightning round sort of thing where we throw some questions at you. Sure. Quick questions, quick answers. So first question for you, Dax, you mentioned Colby. As I was you know, doing my research I typically do before this, I noticed that you were involved with, is it Colby Youth Specialist? I've heard of Colby, have not heard of that. So Kathy Colby, who uh, is a uh, founded uh, Colby Corps, she, uh, she loves education. Uh, she loves working with kids. She's always uh, felt that one of the worst things that can happen is a kid uh, can be branded a certain way in a traditional school environment when they could learn better in a different environment. And, uh, and unfortunately, school systems are set up 
to benefit actually certain types of Colby assessments, what we call initiating fact finder, initiating follow throughs, which are people that love data and follow rules really well, um, where a lot of kids, you know, they may be what we call counteractive. So where I'm going with this is Kathy started a youth certification uh, program. My wife and I have homeschooled our kids for over a decade now. And when I knew she was bringing this out, <clears throat> the last thing I wanted to do was uh, build a homeschool program that was perfect for me and my wife, <clears throat> but was not good for our four kids. Yeah. It's the worst thing I could do. So be able to do uh, assessments on my children, as well as running in homeschool communities and uh, talking to families about their children. Because naturally, parents and kids butt heads no matter what, what right? But it, it, when you don't listen and uh, and really know how your kids learn, then that can affect them the rest of their lives. Yeah, that's fantastic. So again, we're just going to hit a, a variety of different topics. You've interacted with, consulted with really thousands of FAs. What in your mind separates that elite financial professional from the pack? I think the person that does uh, think like a CEO, they know they can't and shouldn't do it all. They, they shouldn't be the one doing the operational work. They should be trading the portfolios that uh, that they have to do one or two things really, really well. Uh, one thing strategic coach taught me was there are different levels of tasks and there's that thing called a level five uh, task. And I'm going to start with level four for, I'll give you a perfect example. I'm trained as a compliance officer. I'm a really, really good compliance officer. I've done it for a long time. Uh, but to me, it, that's a level four task. I'm the smartest guy in the room when it comes to compliance. The problem is I, I've lost my passion for it. Hmm. And to go from a level four task to a level five task is uh, you, you are the smartest person in the room doing it, uh, but you love doing it. You can do it all day long and you don't even break a sweat. And you talked about it earlier, you, know, you, you said something like I get to six o'clock. It's like, where did the day go? Right. People that are doing level five tasks literally get to five o'clock and they're not even tired. They yeah. literally were swimming downstream, not upstream. So I think the most successful advisors are those that understand they have to find their level five task, what they're massively passionate about and massively good at, and that's all they do. And then they delegate everything else. I wanna go back to your military service. Is there anything you particularly miss about your life of being in the military and then what like, what, what kind of takeaway do you think your military experience really helped set you up for, for financial services, just broadly? Um, well, it was really easy on what you were going to wear every day. Uh, so that was really <laughs> simple. Uh, you, you, had a, you had one uniform. You know, I, I, the tough thing is, I don't know if I could go back in the military because you pretty much had to ask for weekend passes and you had to ask when you could take time off and everything else of being now an independent business owner. So I'm do broken. Not miss you know, that. I, I could I could <laughs> yeah. never go back to, to taking <laughs> orders orders from anyone, um, but you know what I loved, um, you know just a good um, good peers, you know great officers, people that you know we used to do professional developments in the military, and those were where uh, senior officers would give you tasks to do, whether it be study a battle. Um, or write a report. I mean, you had homework in the military. There was a thing called an officer efficiency report, which was kind of your annual employee review, so to say. But I mean, you, as an officer, you read a lot of books, especially in the infantry, tactical books, war books. Uh, you did professional developments where you were tasked to uh, recreate battle scenes. I mean, heck, we would go out in the field and we would literally, um, uh, we'd make a sandbox, so to say, and we would recreate a battle on the ground in the sand with little green army soldiers and we would have little different colored uh, tape out there to recreate everything that went on uh, and move those little green army soldiers around and, and recreate the whole battle. And we would talk about what happened because we know history uh, repeats itself and, and battles and tactics. It's the same battle sometimes just fought either in the desert or in the jungle or the mountains by two very capable people and a lot of soldiers and different artillery and everything else. Maybe the, the machines change. Uh, but the tactics never change. And I think that that, if I carried over into corporate business, it is the same thing. Being able to look back and say, when have we been in this situation before? Whether it be the market or an experience with a client or an experience with a product. It's being able to sit back from a leadership level and dissect something 
and then make a very informed decision, I think are the, are the best things I took from the military. Oh man, I could talk to you about that forever. Where can people get in touch with you if they, if they want to? You know, anyone can email me. I mean, I, I, love, um, I love talking to anybody. I love uh, chatting with anybody. You know, even if I can't help you, um, I'm, I'm probably gonna get you in touch with somebody that can. So um, my first initial D and then my last name, S-T-A-D-J-U-H-A-R at FSNweb.com. And FSN stands for Financial Services Network, W-E-B, like the web.com. We'll close on this. You know, as you as you think about our industry, uh, the financial services network, you know, the future, what's on your mind? I know that's a very broad question, but what are you thinking about as you think about the next five, 10 years? Uh, short term, I think the rest of this year, and, I, and I'll just, maybe I'll answer it this way. I think a lot of folks, I, I reaffirm the fact, I don't think anyone's missed the boat on the, if you're worried about the whole virtual engagement with your clients at all. I think it's just a great time to survey your clients, a uh, great time to uh, talk to them and ask them what, what they want and need from you. Ultimately, the clients will always drive this industry, right? Uh, I think the whole, if we were talking anything over the long term, con- uh, just convenience, everything has to become more convenient uh, for individuals. And if that's engagement through technology, if that's engagement through uh, um, electronic signature systems, if it's engagement through virtual meetings, I think that's a consistent theme we're going to see. We should always err on the side of making it as convenient as possible. And if, if it's convenient as possible, that means we have more time to have the deeper conversations. So that's probably it. Uh, if awesome. I were to put all my money on, on black or red, I would just say convenience versus inconvenience. Thanks to our good friend, Dax Staduar. We'll be back in a moment. This is The Whole Truth. Stick with us. And welcome back to the Costanza Corner, where we end the show on a high note. Mr. Side, what you got up your sleeve today? Many of you have probably heard this, but um, I'm very fortunate that I just got a promotion. Um, Kind of, sort of, maybe a little bit management. Don't get, don't worry, everyone who's- Oh, he's a suit. He's a suit Don't worry, anyone in my territory. I still have the same job, but I'm I'm going to be- uh, Managing a few folks across the Pac Coast in Hawaii. Um, very thankful for that opportunity. Our our good friend who was on the show a couple of times, Mary Mock. Uh, I'm very thankful for her for giving me that opportunity. Um, but importantly, thanks to you all because a big reason that um, you know I got chosen for this role was the things I do with practice management in this show. So um, yeah, thanks uh, thanks to everyone. So you're one step closer to world domination. Um, I, I think this is uh, this is probably as cl- maybe as close as I'm going to get. Probably <laughs> you're already close enough to the sun. I'm good clo- I, yeah, <laughs> if I came closer, Kurt, I would just you know you know how it goes. You know the same. Well, congrats, buddy. Thank yeah. you. I'm very happy for you. I'm delighted for the opportunity. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next time. You can find the whole truth and subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. It helps others find the show. And for more episodes of The Whole Truth, go to www.touchstoneinvestments.com slash the whole truth. That's touchstoneinvestments.com slash the whole truth. All one word. Please note that this content was created as of the specific date indicated and reflects views as of that date. It will be kept solely for historical purposes and opinions may change without notice in reacting to shifting economic, market, business, and other conditions. Touchstone funds are distributed by Touchstone Securities Incorporated, a registered broker-dealer and member FINRA and SIPC.